DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. In July 2020, German-Iranian businessman and U.S. resident Jamshid Shamat boarded an Emirates flight bound for India. Shamat had a layover in Dubai, where he checked into a hotel for the night. In Dubai, am 28. Juli, had my mother angerufen. He called my mother from Dubai on July 28th, and she was very worried, of course, because nobody who criticizes the Iranian regime is safe in countries like Turkey or the Arab Emirates or anywhere else in the Middle East. After that phone call, we didn't hear from him in two, three days. But on August 1st, relatives woke us up, telling us, there's something on the internet that you need to check out. That something on the internet was a video showing Gazelle Shamat's father held captive by Iran's Revolutionary Guards. We watched the video. The Iranian regime was showing my father. He was blindfolded with a swollen face. He was forced to confess things that he didn't do. And it was at that moment that we knew. Iran's regime kidnapped my father and may have killed him. Jamshid Shamad was sentenced to death in Iran this year on February 21st for his political activism. He had become a victim of transnational repression. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. The U.S.-based Freedom House think tank has documented thousands of cases of transnational repression in recent years. It's likely just the tip of the iceberg, because often victims and their relatives remain silent, fearing further repercussions if they speak out. Tony Neumann went to investigate how authoritarian regimes try to silence exiled dissidents. Ben Russell has that report. Today, there are dozens of authoritarian regimes who persecute citizens and former citizens living in exile. They go after members of ethnic and religious minorities, alleged criminals and, above all, political dissidents. They are denied passports, spied on and slandered. Relatives still living in their home countries are terrorized or taken hostage. Regimes abduct and murder exiles and even instrumentalize Interpol to issue arrest warrants. Transnational repression isn't a new phenomenon, says Professor Alexander Cooley, a political scientist with New York's Columbia University. In 1940, the Soviet government had Russian revolutionary Leo Trotsky murdered while he lived in exile, and Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein once had political opponents assassinated in London. The most well-known organized network of transnational repression occurred in Latin America in the 1970s and early 80s. It was referred to as Operation Condor. This was the code name that was used for the collection, exchange, and storage of intelligence data that targeted communists, Marxists, amongst cooperating security services in South America, specifically Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Chile, Paraguay, and Uruguay, that was also funded and supported by the CIA. Operation Condor claimed the lives of about 650 people. In 1976, for example, Chile's Pinochet regime killed Orlando Letelier, the country's former ambassador to the United States, with a car bomb. It exploded in the U.S. capital, Washington, D.C. Observers say transnational repression is rampant today. The U.S.-based Freedom House think tank has documented thousands of cases in recent years. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. 
because often victims and their relatives remain silent, fearing further repercussions if they speak out. Major countries guilty of persecuting exiled dissidents are China, Russia, Turkey, and Iran. But smaller countries like Rwanda and Tajikistan go after exiles too. Freedom House says more than just a threat to individual activists, transnational repression is a tool of global authoritarianism. It imperils human rights, democratic values, and national security. The U.S. think tank says that transnational repression is on the rise because authoritarianism is on the rise, because many more people opposing regimes today emigrate to foreign countries, and because digital technology makes it far easier for regimes to go after citizens who live abroad. But exiled dissidents also benefit from modern technology. Social media can be used to reveal to the world and people at home what's really going on. A decade and a half ago, social media played an important role in forming pro-democracy movements across Central Asia, and it helped drive the Arab Spring uprisings in North African countries. Uyghur women in exile have used social media to tell the world about internment camps in China's Xinjiang province. And Iranians have taken to social media platforms to shed light on the recent uprisings of women against the Mullah regime. Saudi constitutional lawyer Abdullah Alod heads the U.S.-based Freedom Initiative, a non-governmental organization. It works to promote and defend human rights in Saudi Arabia and Egypt. He's the son of a jailed Saudi preacher and uses audio chat rooms on X, formerly known as Twitter, to expose human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia. It's actually an audio panel in which you invite people to speak in Arabic about a case that, for example, we are working on. And believe it or not, we get sometimes thousands and thousands and thousands of listeners and people who engage from inside the country. And there were like one time when we had actually like 60,000 participants the vast majority of them were actually from inside Saudi Arabia. Berlin-based journalist Lee Trung Khoa runs Toy Bao, a news platform dedicated to Vietnamese current affairs. His 10-person editorial team covers Vietnamese politics, corruption and human rights abuses. In 2017, his platform broke the story of a Vietnamese businessman who was abducted in Berlin and taken to Hanoi. He talks to sources in Vietnam using secure channels like the Signal messaging app. Even Vietnamese officials working in the Communist Party or the army or the police send us information because they know a lot about what is happening in the system. But they can't publish it. That's why they send it to us. After verifying the information, the journalists publish it on Toibar.de as well as on YouTube, Facebook and X audio chat rooms. Toy by itself is blocked in Vietnam. They can be difficult or impossible to block. It is possible that they manage to block one of your links after a month or so, but we are always prepared with lots of different links. We create new ones so that we can continue reaching people in Vietnam. By exposing crimes and corruption, exiled dissidents can undermine authoritarian regimes' international standing and threaten their internal stability. That's why authoritarian powers try to silence dissidents, labeling them as terrorists and extremists who can be persecuted in foreign countries. 
Many regimes claim, some more overtly than others, that the rules of their dictatorship not only apply to citizens at home, but also extend to those living abroad. Special Agent Roman Rozevsky works for the FBI's Transnational Repression Unit in Washington. In May of 2022, we charged four Chinese intelligence officers with the MSS, the Ministry of State and Security, as well as a U.S. citizen for allegedly spying on pro-democracy dissidents in New York. At least one of those dissidents was later arrested and imprisoned in China. The FBI began investigating cases of transnational repression not too long ago. Often, such repression occurs in the digital realm, says political scientist and IT expert Markus Mikkelson. He works for Citizen Lab, a research institute at the University of Toronto. Digitale Technologien haben autoritären Regimen weltweit neue Möglichkeiten. Digital technologies have given authoritarian regimes around the world new ways to extend control over dissidents or over entire exile communities. They no longer need to send agents to infiltrate or pressure political groups in other countries, but can easily use social media, for example, to gather information about political activities abroad and intimidate and silence people. Und mittels verschiedener digitaler Bedrohungen Menschen einschüchtern und zum Schweigen bringen. Attackers tend to be methodical in their approach. Es fängt an mit dem ganz einfachen Monitoring und Überwachen. It starts with monitoring and surveillance, that is, collecting publicly available information on social media about exiles. And they also collect information about their contacts, friends, networks, travel patterns and hobbies. All this information can then be used for further attacks. For example, for phishing attacks, where malware is installed on the target's device in order to spy on them or destroy data. And to do this, attackers often use information that they previously collected to get the target to open certain documents or links. For example, they might send them an invitation to a conference that perfectly matches their professional interests or draws their attention to certain human rights violations, promising special information, so that the target person opens a document whereupon malware is installed on their device. Die Person ein Dokument öffnet und woraufhin sich dann diese Schadsoftware auf dem Gerät installiert. A number of Arab states in particular are using Israel's Pegasus spyware. It installs itself autonomously on targeted devices and is used to tap into smartphones and spy on a person's environment, says Markus Michaelson. When such attacks are successful, dictatorships can monitor exiles and accurately assess how dangerous they are. The regimes can then track interactions between activists at home and abroad, identify conflicts within diaspora communities, and use this information to amplify conflicts and spread discord. Dabei kommen auch künstliche Accounts zum Einsatz, also sogenannte Bots, Attackers also use fake social media accounts, or bots, to spread massive amounts of false information and agitate against people. This is done to intimidate them or undermine their reputation. Such campaigns sometimes use private information or photos that were previously stolen from hacked devices. Markus Michelsen says women are more often subjected to such online attacks than men. Take the example of Al Jazeera journalist Rada Weiss. Her bikini pictures were stolen from her smartphone and circulated to portray her as a prostitute who owes her career to granting others sexual favors. This was done to damage her reputation. 
The Saudi regime has committed some of the most egregious acts of transnational repression in the world, employing droves of highly skilled specialists. A few years ago, Saudi spies got their hands on personal data linked to some 6,000 Twitter accounts at the company's headquarters. Many Twitter users in Saudi Arabia were then promptly arrested. Taking exiled family members hostage is another form of transnational repression. China's government regularly blackmails exiles by going after their families at home, Abida Ablimet tells us at Munich's World Uyghur Congress headquarters. Ablimet heads a Uyghur cultural and educational association. Chinese consulate employees regularly film protest attendees, she says. With the help of facial recognition technology, demonstrators can be identified within hours, she says, after which family members back home are threatened by local police. She lost touch with her own family back home in China. They used to talk on the WeChat app. Dann haben alle mich gelöscht. Everyone deleted me. I have a great aunt here in Beijing. The whole family lives there. They left me a message. Please don't be angry with us. I can't tell you here what happened. Please, we will think of you. We will never forget you. Years passed without her ever speaking to her family. Then, in May 2022, she suddenly received a WhatsApp call, which she had the presence of mind to record. Hello, how are you? Uh, fine, who are you? I'm a good friend of yours. We're on our way to your grandparents' house right now. When we get there, we'll call you. We talked on the phone. My grandmother was on the phone. Just like normal. I pretended things were normal too, because I didn't want them to get into trouble. I said, yes, I'm fine. This and that. Then the man who called me was on the phone again. We just wanted to visit them. You know, they're not the youngest right now either. You know who we are, right? This is what Abida Ablimit calls soft intimidation. Dolkun Issa, the president of the World Uyghur Congress, experienced something even more shocking. My mother died concentration camp. She was 78 years old lady. She was not politician. She was not an activist. She was just an ordinary woman. But she was put in one of the concentration camp. After one year, she died. Then 2020, my father passed away. But still, I have no idea where my father's cemetery is. What time he passed away? What condition he passed away? Which year he passed away? I didn't know. I only knew this from the media. And in 2021, I got another news about my family. My old brother sentenced 17 years. My young brother sentenced to life. Issa's brothers were handed jail sentences in 2021. His younger brother received a life sentence. His older brother was given 17 years. Issa says the Chinese government terrorizes the families of exiled Uyghurs to force them to return to China. Once back in China, they are then charged for fraud, corruption or extremism. If terrorizing family members does not compel individuals to return, China uses covert police stations in the EU and North America to hunt them down. Or China gets fellow dictatorships to help. 2017 in May, 
Chinese government issue a special order, give some deadline, and the end of May, any Uyghurs who are living in the exile or study or make business should be returned. Other way, a family member will be arrested and passport will be cancelled. Then a the couple of hundred Uyghur students who study in Egypt return to China, they immediately arrested them. After that, the rest of them, they heard this news and they don't back to China, but Chinese government cooperate with the Egyptian police, arrested up to two, three hundred Uyghur students. In August 2022, China's Ministry of Public Security announced it had convinced 230,000 Chinese nationals to return to China between April 2021 and July 2022 to face trial. China and other authoritarian regimes are also using Interpol to apprehend wanted exiles. They get Interpol to issue red notices or arrest warrants, which are distributed worldwide. But Interpol does not issue red notices for political crimes. That's why regimes usually accuse wanted suspects of corruption, child abuse or terrorism instead. Dolkon Issa, the president of the World Uyghur Congress, for instance, had an Interpol arrest warrant out for his capture for 21 years. He was repeatedly arrested around the world. Interpol, however, rejected 60,000 wanted persons requests submitted by Turkey following the 2016 coup attempt. Authoritarian regimes have not shied away from abducting and murdering dissidents in exile either. On May 23, 2021, for example, the Belarusian regime forced Ryanair flight FR4978 to land in Minsk. Belarusian journalist in exile Roman Patasevich and his girlfriend Sofia Sapega were taken off the plane and arrested. In Berlin, a Vietnamese man was kidnapped and taken to Hanoi in 2017. On October 2, 2018, Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered in Saudi Arabia's Istanbul consulate. And a few days later, Saudi agents attempted to assassinate former Saudi minister Saad al-Jabri in Canada. And in 2019, a Chechen man was shot dead in central Berlin on orders of Chechen strongman Ramzan Kadyrov. The FBI's Roman Rozevsky again. In July of 2021, the FBI and the U.S. government indicted Iranian intelligence officer Ali Reza Farahani and four co-conspirators for attempting to kidnap a dissident who criticized the Iranian government and they wanted to rendition that person to Iran. In that case, they hired a private investigator to help them. However, the private investigator ended up working with the FBI. One of the co-conspirators pleaded guilty while the rest are in Iran. Iran was out to get New York-based journalist Mashid Alinejad. In early 2023, the FBI arrested three other agents who had planned to murder the dissident. German-Iranian businessman and activist Jamshid Shamat, meanwhile, has been held in Iran since summer 2020. He has been sentenced to death and held in dark, solitary confinement, says his daughter Gazelle. He told us he has no teeth left, that his teeth are broken. Teeth don't just break. They were either knocked out or they fell out due to malnutrition. He's also got shortness of breath. He doesn't know if it's day or if it's night. He doesn't have anyone to talk to. He talks to himself. These consequences of isolation and solitary confinement, this soulless time when you're cut off from the outside world and reality, 
They drive a person crazy. They destroy you. But how does transnational repression affect victims' families? The day my father was kidnapped, I was five months pregnant, working as a nurse in a COVID-19 unit. I thought the worst thing that could happen to me was that I'd get COVID and lose my child. I woke up from that nightmare and I found myself in a totally different, even worse nightmare. I can't leave this nightmare. For three years, I've been in this state of crisis. I don't sleep. I get no rest. I can no longer think freely or act freely. Many exile dissidents and their relatives report living in constant fear. They suffer from insomnia, feel stressed, isolated, lonely, mistrustful and paranoid. Many Uyghurs living in Germany have stopped engaging in political activism, says Erkin Sumun, a staff member at the World Uyghur Congress. Many practice self-censorship. Some even badmouth the World Uyghur Congress, privately admitting they're doing so only because Chinese authorities are threatening their families. What you can see is that the last protests were attended by fewer and fewer people. You just notice that since 2022, 2023. Before, when we staged protests, some 500, 600 people would show up. Now, when we gather, there are maybe 80, 70, 60 people. Erkin Sumun says he is not phased by this. On the contrary... Simun has written a brochure that explains to Uyghur refugees how to protect themselves from Chinese online attacks and how to deal with threats issued by Chinese authorities. Berlin-based Vietnamese journalist Li Trung Kua won't be intimidated either, even though he is inundated with death threats on YouTube and Facebook. His family has been living under police protection since 2018. And yet, the journalist keeps his news platform running, taking on Vietnam's authoritarian state, a formidable foe with far greater resources than him. Authoritarian regimes have begun working together to persecute exile dissidents, says political scientist Alexander Cooley. Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Gulf Cooperation Council, are important in this respect, that authoritarian countries are creating webs of international cooperation for their interior ministries. And some of the activities this enables are the creation of common political dissidents and extremist lists, right? And so each country designates what it considers to be threats to its particular country or government, and the other countries as part of that regional organization agree. The sort of bypassing of international humanitarian protections, asylum laws, that's another dimension of this. And the empowerment to conduct investigations in each other's territories. That's another dimension of this. So, for instance, the SCOs, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization's Anti-Terror Treaty of 2009, creates the possibility that countries can investigate political opponents and threats on each other's territories for up to 30 days, and that they can request the extradition of terrorists and extremist suspects with no burden of proof specified. Many extradition treaties between Russia, China and Turkey, as well as among Central and Southeast Asian countries, contain similar provisions. The Turkish government has 
boasted openly that it has returned more than 100 people from over 27 countries. And the vast majority of these are in connection with the so-called Gulenist coup. And so there is a perception and a widespread justification that these are legitimate counterterrorism targets, right? That this is part of a network that attempted to overthrow the government in Turkey. And so now these are absolutely acceptable political targets. I think what's absolutely fascinating about the Turkish case is how open Erdogan is in parading many of these targets on national TV and boasting about their successful rendition back into the country. We wanted to know what the governments of Turkey, China, Russia, Iran, Vietnam and Rwanda had to say about such acts of transnational repression and reached out to them, but received no reply. Are democracies taking sufficient action to stop dictatorships hunting down exiles on their own territory? Many experts say they're not. Time and again, authoritarian regimes instrumentalize the institutions of democratic countries for their own purposes. In the US, for example, asylum seekers listed by some Arab states as terrorists are treated almost like convicted criminals. As a rule, they're refused visas and often jailed until a decision is made regarding their asylum application. The same applies to refugees from authoritarian countries against whom Interpol has issued arrest warrants. The US, meanwhile, is making some efforts to combat transnational repression. A 2021 law now obliges the US government to document cases of cross-border repression and publish the findings. The FBI has a special hotline for victims of transnational repression and also trains local police departments to recognize such crimes. And US Congress is currently debating how to prosecute individuals found guilty of committing transnational repression. Right now, we normally charge transnational repression perpetrators with crimes such as unlawfully acting as an agent of a foreign power, harassment, kidnapping, charges like that. So if there was a law that specifically codified and defined transnational repression, it would definitely help law enforcement because it would take away some of the gray areas that the authoritarian regimes are currently using, such as the example of using a private investigator to conduct legal activity that still intimidates and harasses the dissidents. Having a specific law would also help by bringing a lot of attention to transnational repression and further educating the public so that we get more leads and more people coming forward to report it. Investigators in democratic countries would have to identify and punish the masterminds behind acts of transnational repression in order to deter regimes from going after exiles. But many democratic states maintain close ties with dictatorships. China, for example, is a key economic partner for many democratic countries. Britain wants to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda according to a 2022 deal. But Rwanda is also thought to have orchestrated the killing of several Rwandan exiles. NATO member state Turkey could continue blocking Sweden's accession to the alliance unless it extradites persons wanted by Turkey. Persons, one should add, that Sweden has granted refugee status to, and some of whom are Swedish nationals. Saudi Arabia and Egypt maintain a security partnership with the US. And large parts of the world economy depend on Saudi oil. 
all these interdependencies can have bewildering consequences. Take the example of journalist Jamal Khashoggi. A 2021 US intelligence report found that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman had without a doubt ordered the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. But only a year and a half later, US President Joe Biden met the Crown Prince in person, shaking hands with him. The two met and shook hands again at the G20 meeting in India in 2023. Biden failed to deliver on his promise to punish the journalists' killers, says Saudi constitutional lawyer Abdullah Aloud. The Saudi Crown Prince now got the lesson that he literally got away with murder. Unfortunately, the Biden administration thought that in order to decrease the oil prices, you can meet with this guy because you gave him a leverage when you shook hand with this guy. You basically gave him a green light to continue the practices that he have been doing. Gazelle Shamat says Iran is also getting off lightly. She says the German foreign office talked to her about her jailed father. We have keinerlei Antworten bekommen. But we didn't get any details about what the Foreign Office is doing exactly. For three years, we've been told that high-ranking officials are engaged in resolving the situation. But nobody's explained to me what that means. We can see what this engagement has led to. My father got the death sentence. He'll be murdered. Jamshid Shamad's daughter Gazelle there, ending that report by Tony Neumann, presented by Ben Russell. The studio team was Ziad Abu Sleiman and Wiebke Tegtmeier. Thanks for listening. I've been your host, Sarah Steffen. Until next time, bye for now.